That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy. Like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. This season, we're bringing in leading female powerhouses to take a deep dive into the topics that matter most to you. Technology, money, marketing, entrepreneurship, you name it, we're covering it all. Tune in every Wednesday for career, real talk, and BS-free advice from the best in the biz. Ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Despite reports that African-American audiences consume media far more than any other demographic group does, no one has capitalized on those stats or amplified Black millennial voices like Morgan Devon. With $9 million in funding, Blavity is one of the largest media startups and lifestyle brands for Black millennials, and she's only just getting started. The self-professed entrepreneur and hustler is on a mission to incite change and create a platform where everyone belongs. Not to mention she's defying the odds by building a hugely successful digital media company in a time when the media industry is seeing closures, layoffs, and an overall decline in ad revenue. It's clear that Morgan cares deeply about her audience and about creating meaningful content that aims to improve the lives of her readers, not falling into the trap of clickbait and trending headlines. In this episode of Work Party, I sit down with Morgan to discuss how she's creating a sisterhood in Silicon Valley, navigating the nuances of being Black in tech and media, and what's in store for her future. So let's get right into it. Hey, Morgan. We're so excited to have you on the show. Hi. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning. Um, So you grew up in St. Louis. Can you take us back to your childhood and like, what experiences shaped you to be the leader you are today and tell us a little bit about how you ended up becoming the CEO of this incredible media company. Yeah, man. So St. Louis was my home forever. And I went to college in St. Louis. Um, I went to school, St. Louis Public School District, and um, also in the county. So I'm just a St. Louis girl, 100% through and through Midwest. Um, I never thought that I would live in California. I never thought that I would definitely not live in LA. But here I am sitting here now. And I grew up um, middle-class household and I always cared a lot about like entrepreneurship, but I don't know that that's exactly what I thought it, I didn't use that term, but I was always trying to turn a dollar into a dollar 50. So I remember some of my earliest memories were like giving my brother a loan on a napkin because he wanted to buy a video game. And I was like, cool, like here's my allowance, but then you have to pay me back. I'm taking all of your allowance next week. So I just remember constantly trying to like make more money and asking my parents for more chores so they could pay me more. I started 
investing in the stock market when I was 13. So um, entrepreneurship and just like money management and making more out of nothing was has always been a part of my life. Where did that come from? Like, were your parents entrepreneurs or do you just feel like it was this innate thing that you were kind of born with? My parents are definitely not entrepreneurs. My dad's a doctor. My mom was a homemaker. Um, so I, I think that I was definitely always creative. So I just never really conformed to the rules. Like I didn't understand why I needed to get a hundred percent on the test. I'm like, but why? Like for what? You know, like I just never accepted the guidelines of the rules that people gave me. And um, I don't think I realized that fully that I was different in that way until probably like after graduation, as I started to think about quitting my job and go blab- do blabity full time. I, I didn't really realize that I was such a, a risk taker. Yeah. I feel like you usually don't. I feel like the things that make you so great and sort of shape your personality and your career path, like usually in your teens and 20, early twenties, aren't that exciting. Um, it's actually some of the things that can make you a bad per- worker in a corporate environment. Um, but the things that make you a great CEO and entrepreneur. So talk to me a little bit about what you were doing pre blabby So you mentioned talking your job. So you graduated from Washington university. You were like top of your class. What did you do next? Like, where did you go? So I moved straight to Silicon Valley right after graduation. Um, and I had no idea what Silicon Valley was actually when I first started on my kind of like job application search. So I'll give you a quick story. I was somewhere between, I think, sophomore and junior year. I was applying for internships. I applied to Google. I applied to Wells Fargo, United Way. And I got a job at Google, an internship at Google. And the location said Mountain View. And so I declined it because I didn't want to live in the Mountain View for the summer because I thought that like Mountain View was in the mountains and not just in California. (laughs) Um, And so that's how far away I was from Silicon Valley in terms of being, having access to this separate technology universe and like what it meant and where it was. And, um, but fast forward, you know, through undergrad, I started to just learn more about technology. I read TechCrunch every day and Hacker News and just fully started to consume as much as possible. And I just started applying for jobs at companies and the products I used. And I worked at Intuit, which owns and operates Mint and TurboTax. And um, I was there for three years. So that's what I did for three years, product management. And I was in a leadership development program. So I also rotated throughout the company. And it was just, I had such a great time learning about making products. But I felt like I felt like I was missing something. I felt like I was missing something that could make a difference. And I felt like I was missing my purpose. Um, I was getting great skills, but it didn't necessarily, the career trajectory that I was on didn't feel like a world I wanted to live in in the future. And so that was kind of the underlying itch that I was starting to feel as I advanced through my career at Intuit. I love that. And so walk me through the moment when you're like blavity, um, because you launched in 2000. 14 and you have co-founders, um, but you're working a full-time job. Talk to me about launching it, the idea, basically how it went from this, you know, concept and idea to fruition. Yeah. So Blavity first stands for black gravity. It's a term that we used in undergrad and I started the company and then brought on my three co-founders who we all went to college together at WashU. So Blavity was a phrase that we used. I thought it was a word that everybody used, but apparently not. And it stood for black gravity when like everybody comes together at the lunch table and all of a sudden you're like, 
dude, do you even have class today? Like, why are you on campus? You know? So it was that moment of just like coming together. And it was, uh, especially at the lunch table that was so pivotal for me because it was a moment of being seen and having connection and being able to ask questions and people from all over campus, from all over the country, different classes and Blavity Online has been trying to bring that emotion back and that connectedness back. And so I felt really lonely when I had my full-time job and lived in Mountain View, California. I felt disconnected from my community and I really miss being able to walk down the hall um, and knock on someone's door and hang out. And I missed always having a social calendar that was full. I didn't really know what loneliness was until I kind of entered the workforce. And I think a lot of people felt that way and maybe still do. And so Blavity, the concept started when I started to feel that and realize that other people, and especially people in the Black community, felt that as we all went through and operated in this kind of world that we were living in. Your business is more than the goods you sell or the services you provide. It's truly the heart of the economy. That's why I'm teaming up with MasterCard to support entrepreneurs by sharing my tips and advice to help their local businesses. Like how to craft a brand voice on social media that resonates with millennials. Millennials are Crate and Cultivate's core demographic, so I happen to know a thing or two about this topic. This goes without saying, but social media is a vital part of a millennial's brand strategy. It's an important channel, but it's also extremely saturated. You want to be strategic in the content you're throwing into the mix, so you're making an impact rather than just contributing to the noise. My first tip is to prioritize your audience. If you want to resonate with them, do the work to get to know them. Dig into the data to learn where your followers live, what other accounts they follow, and the content that's generating the most engagement from them. Use your audience behavior to guide your strategy. My second tip is consistency, consistency, consistency. Be consistent with your posting cadence, filters, the types of content you post, caption style, and voice. Start a weekly IGTV series, post monthly giveaways, or even launch a weekly spotlight on local businesses. Your followers will come to you for these initiatives and look forward to them every week. Lastly, aim to fill a white space of some kind. As I said, the social media scape is noisy, but make it your mission to stand out in some way and offer your audience something they're not already receiving from other brands. For more tools and resources, go to mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. That's mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. Together, we can start something priceless. Hi, I'm Shanae Alexander, host of Press Send, a podcast and more importantly, a safe and hilarious place for candid conversations about the scary, funny, heartbreaking, but always intriguing questions that make us all human. Each week, me and a new best friend you haven't met yet field your questions across any and all topics and offer our take on the matter with plenty of humor, heart, and badassery along the way. We launch a new episode of Press Send every Wednesday. We'll see you there. You brought on co-founders early on. Can you talk to us about why you made that decision and like how you knew they would be the right fit for the business? Yeah, absolutely. So when I, whenever I have an idea, I always run it by my friends, probably annoyingly so. 
I'm like, what if there was an app that you could use? Um, what if is my favorite question to ask and to challenge myself with? And so these three guys, Jonathan, Jeff, and Aaron, were people that I trusted and valued their opinion. And I'd constantly been asking them what ifs about different projects. And so Blavity was one in which, um, and Jeff Nelson, who's our CTO now, was the first to, to take the bait. He was the first one to be like, all right, I'm in, you know? And he is... Uh, was at Palantir at the time. And so I would go over there after work and eat their food because they had free dinner. And we would just brainstorm and start working on different things. And I knew I needed someone technical because I wanted to be a platform. I wanted to leverage what I was learning and try to connect people through the internet. And I knew we needed to build something to do that. So Jeff was on board. And then I knew that I wanted it to be big. I wanted the company to be a company and not just a brand. I wanted to make a group of have a group of people come together and operate independently, and for us to be able to monetize and build something that can hire people and give cash back into the Black community. And so, in order to do that, I needed operations, right? So I needed Aaron, who's my now my COO, and Aaron was at Bain at the time, and he was strategy guy. And then uh, the final guy that I brought on board was Jonathan. Jonathan was at LinkedIn and he's just a fantastic storyteller. He's the guy that everybody loves. You know, he's like the best brand ambassador in the universe. And so, and he was in New York as well. So we, we knew that New York was a top city for us. So it was just a great group of people and a group of people that I trusted and had already been through thick and thin with me in undergrad. And, and entrepreneurship is just such a journey. And it's so important to have people with you that you trust because you know, one week you're up and you got a million dollars in the bank and the next week you're down in your cash, right? I mean, you know, it's crazy. It can get crazy. So um, I'm so grateful to have them with me. Absolutely. And yes, I feel you on that hundred percent. So cut to years later, you've grown Blavity to over 20 million users. You become this amazing trusted source of news culture, entertainment, and a, and a real community for Black millennials. Why do you think the brand and the content resonated so much with the audience? You know, I think that Blavity really solved a problem that was so apparent, especially six years ago. I think a lot of people have caught up a little bit, but particularly in the Black media space, we were solving a problem that existed for our generation. So older generations had media companies, Essence, Ebony, Jet Magazine, Black Enterprise, some of which still exist today, um, but they were really critical to disseminating information and connecting each other. They were the magazine that was in the hair salons. They were the magazine you picked up and read on your grandpa's you know, couch. Like They were the one that was in the grocery store. But our generation didn't have anything. We, of course, still kind of interacted with those things, but they weren't really, they hadn't made the transition to being online. And separately, our community at the millennials and certainly Gen Z, we care less about celebrity and we care more about local stories, local heroes, creatives, designers, artists. We care more about that. And so there wasn't a lot of brands that were elevating those stories and those people. And so I think Blavity spread very quickly because we were just solving a problem that people really didn't know that they had until they were like, whoa, where has this been? And then as we got bigger, I started to realize that there were other problems and lacks of information or platforms that we weren't 
that our community also didn't have. So we acquired Travel Noir and turned it into a media brand. Um, we acquired Shadow and Act and really blew out its digital strategy. And we built Afrotech, you know, a huge tech conference because we knew that there was nothing for Black people in tech in Silicon Valley to raise money and to get career advancement and advice. So it's all been about problem solving for the same consumer. And I think that's also what makes our ecosystem very strong. Absolutely. And about, you know, 30% of the content is actually user generated. So people can submit stories and ideas and videos to the website. But can you tell us a little bit about how that makes you different than other media companies and how you also review, curate and fact check all the content that's sort of coming in? Yeah, one of the best things about serving our audience is that like black folks are just like the most creative human beings on earth. I really believe that. So, you know, when why do I need a team of making memes when I just have a whole community that makes the best memes for everyone? So how do we just create a platform where people can share the things and ideas that they already have? How do I get out of the way and just enable them? And so that's kind of why that's one of our competitive advantages and thinking with the Silicon Valley mindset and a startup mindset instead of a media journalism mindset first. And that is, I think, has made us have a pulse on what's going on in the culture. And in terms of editing and fact-checking, one, I will say our audience is incredibly critical. I mean, we make one little typo and I get a thousand emails. So there's a lot of fact-checking that happens just organically, but we also have editors that review every story. We will work with writers who want to submit op-eds, um, help them with their headlines, help make sure that it's a good con- piece of content. And then on video, we've been doing this really fun thing with Travel Noir where we'll send cameras all over the world. People will send us back the raw footage. We'll edit it for them. So we're, we're also playing with different kind of ways of user-generated content, not even just for articles, but also like taking over Instagram and doing Instagram Lives or send us your footage, send us your photos. Um, and that's been really fun in the last couple of years to explore other ways of of enabling people to share their stories. Yeah. And really leveraging your audience and being able to kind of create amazing content without having to have a team of a thousand people that need to be there kind of doing it, which I think is, you know, really smart from a business perspective, like you said, not thinking like an old media institution. So you mentioned you acquired Travel Noir and Shadow and Act. Can you tell us a little bit about your acquisition strategy? Was that something that was always part of it um, that you knew you wanted to do? And how have these acquisitions bolstered your media portfolio? And are you planning anything in the future? Yeah, so one of the problems that I had as I was kind of thinking through our overall company strategy, I would say this was around year two, we were really big, meaning we had a lot of users on a monthly basis visiting the website. We had great traffic, but it was just blavity.com, right? It was just one brand, which now in hindsight, I'm like, oh my God, I love those days. But it's just one. And the challenge with that was that from a market point of view, thinking about monetization and revenue and our sponsors, we knew we needed to be bigger to meet a minimum threshold of how big a company that wanted to spend $100,000 with us or more, six figures, seven figures, we knew that we needed more inventory. I needed to reach more people on a regular basis. And it's just the age old question, do you build it or do you buy it? And I had seen how long it took me to build something. And if I wanted to get as big as I wanted to get, it made it was faster to buy it, you know? And that was just the first decision. Is it, is it faster to build it or buy it? Um, and is it cheaper to build it or buy it? And then from there, it became, what are brands that people love, that they are just obsessed with? What has so much brand equity that I could never duplicate it on my own? I mean, the founder of Travel Noir poured her 
soul into Travel Noir and created the most beautiful community on Instagram. And we had a huge uh, operational strength on monetization and websites. They didn't really have a media website and they didn't have any content. It's hard to believe, but it's true. So it was like a perfect marriage because they had the brand, they had the audience, no content, no editorial, no video, boom, easy integration. So that's the other thing that I look at is like, where can we, where are we strong and how can we build that in? We've looked at a variety of deals. I've lost a couple of deals that I'm very sad about, but you know, we march on. And so, yeah, we're constantly evaluating different options. Um, for now, I think particularly given the economy, we're going to just stay pretty quiet for the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you're also the founder of the Work Smart program. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it helps small business owners? Yeah, so one of the, I think, surprising privileges, the things that I didn't expect when I went on my Blavity journey was how much, and I wonder if this is the tr- true for you too, but like how much other entrepreneurs look up to you and like how you've become a role model. When in reality, you know, I didn't start out to be a role model. I started out to like solve a problem. And all of a sudden now I'm like responsible for answering people's questions about fundraising or um, how to monetize or how to make their first hire. And I was advising a lot of people just passively via Instagram DMs or Twitter DMs or random calls on from LinkedIn requests. And I enjoyed it. It brought me happiness and I loved being able to share information with people. And at the same time, it wasn't scalable, which is always a question I ask myself. It's like, if I continue to do what I'm doing and I enjoy it, will I be burned out? Is it scalable? Does it make sense? How can I make this more efficient for myself and help more people? And so I started this brand and a program called WorkSmart, which basically is a program where I can advise people on a quarterly basis to help them do better in their business, make more money, and ideally be less dependent on themselves as an owner of the business, meaning I want them to think about building a team. I want to help them reduce the fear around scaling and, and growing. Um, and I just do a ton of free content webinars and masterclasses every week, and which it just makes me really happy. So that's why I started the brand and a little bit about it. I love it. It's amazing. I like honestly want to take um, the program. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about money. Um, so less than 1% of Black women get venture funding, but you as part of Blavity, have raised millions. Can you tell us a little bit about the fundraising process and how you persisted despite the setbacks and statistics around it? Yeah, fundraising is one of the hardest things I think that anyone can do in their life. And it's certainly hard for and difficult for women and women of color. And uh, my story is is no different than the statistics, um, only that I feel lucky that I was able to swindle the system and get, get through. But I think for me, I started off and I didn't, I knew nothing. I mean, I, I started this conversation sharing with you how far away from Silicon Valley I was. And so everything that I've learned, it's been through advisors and mentors and trial and error and lots of tears. Um, you know, I, I vividly remember a conversation when I was raising my seed round And I was on the phone with two VCs, female VCs. And so I felt like, oh, they're going to get it. Like they're going to, you know, they're going to get it. They're going to understand me. And I remember on the call, they were, they were actively declining me. And I started crying. They couldn't see me because I was on the phone, but I just remember feeling so defeated because if the women investors don't get me, then man, 
what am I going to do? And I'd already, a lot of black investors didn't understand what I wanted to do or my vision. And so they declined me. And I was just, it was horrible, I think in the beginning. And so, yeah, I share that story because I think a lot of times when you hear founding stories and venture stories, people just talk about the raise. They don't talk about all the failed raises to get there or how hard it is. So, you know, venture funding isn't for everybody. Our lead investor for our Series A was GV, Google Ventures, which is such a privilege because they're just one of the top VCs in the world and they come with so many resources. So it's been really fantastic to have them on the board and as a partner, particularly given that we have a huge ad business. And so I feel grateful that I have so many awesome partners kind of on our cap table, but it hasn't been easy. It's, it's definitely one of the hardest things that's in my job. Yeah, it's, I mean, we're self-funded, but I can't even imagine. I feel like the stories I hear day in and day out, it's, it's a lot, but um, congratulations on, on being able to, to do that. But can you also share with us, you know, you talk a little bit about the challenges, obviously fundraising is its own challenge, but what were some of the biggest money mistakes that you made early on? And what have you sort of learned from those moving forward? Oh my gosh, no, so many mistakes, Jacqueline. <laughs> I remember the first time, like a million dollars was in our bank account. And I was like, whoa hey, this is a lot of money. What's up? Um, and now it doesn't even like phase me. So I think part of the problem with transitioning from founder to CEO is that your norm, you know, it's money in, money out. You don't even really process everything. But in the beginning, I had this huge fear. I mean, I would not spend, my team probably thought I was the cheapest person ever. Like I was like, we're going to Goodwill for these couches. Like do not spend a dollar because I was so scared that I wasn't going to be able to raise again. And I was scared that this was going to be it. So I think that was the first thing was like letting go of the reins a little bit because we needed to spend to grow. And that was really hard for me because it felt so weird to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in a month, even if it came back. So that was the first thing was just a self-limiting fear. And then the second money problem that I had was actually, I didn't understand cash flows well enough. I call it hood rich. So I was basically like, kind of like popping. But like, when you look in the bank, you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't add up because we were growing so fast that I didn't manage our cash flow. So we had a lot of money. We had huge accounts receivables and we had closed these huge six figure deals with multiple clients, but we had maybe cost of goods. Like we had to do a video shoot or we had to do a photo shoot. And so we were paying out of pocket for that because we hadn't gotten paid yet. But when you have a lot of those going on, like 10 plus clients, that's a lot of cash that's just floating in the universe, but it looks like you have money. So I didn't really understand that problem until I had it. And um, yeah, so that was the second thing, understanding cash flow and figuring it out and having some tight months. And then the third thing certainly, I think, was payroll. I mean, I don't know that I understood how expensive it is to have full-time employees with benefits and healthcare and uh, everything that goes into payroll taxes by state and municipalities, et cetera. So um, I learned a lot early about payroll and I think it helped as we grew and scaled up to you know, 75 employees and hundreds of contractors, it really helped to understand payroll processes early. I'm on mute, but I'm just like, yes, 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 yes. (laughs) 
so much yes to everything you're saying. A hundred percent. I mean, we do massive events. Cash flow is crazy. You'll spend millions of dollars on these events and you're on net 60 or net 90 with some of your bigger clients and it can be a real challenge. So I think that's a huge, huge tip, you know, that you're kind of giving out there and then payroll completely agree. Also just taxes, like how expensive it is just to run, run a business. Like you have to pay to run a business. Like it's insane. It's, um, all the taxes. Every time those those come in, I'm like, wait, what? It's a real problem. I think that's the other thing that was challenging for me is like, there's a certain part of a type of business. When you start to run a seven figure, eight figure business, you're in a different world. And not like you can talk to your friends and be like, Hey sis. So like, did you have a profitable year? Did you pay that tax or no? Like, you know, it's a whole nother world. And that's why I think spaces like Create Cultivate are so important so that you know, I've met so many other female CEOs just being a part of your community and being on panels and being like, oh my gosh, hi. So <laughs> you raised your series B or series C. Like, can we talk about it? Did you hire a banker? Like, how did you do it? Right. So I think for women, it's important that we build relationships with women that are one step ahead of us because it can be very difficult and critical to your success to just know, hey, when you're raising this round, make sure you run these terms by your investor, pay a board advisor, independent board advisor, right? Like just those little questions, all those things add up at this level. Oh, it's so true. It's, and that's, that's such great advice is to find someone that's a couple steps ahead of you. I, I think that's amazing. So, all right, let's talk about COVID-19. So how, how are you doing? How's the company and like, what has been the impact specifically with you guys in Blavity? So the company's fine. We made adjustments very early. I followed kind of the timeline that was happening in the Bay area, which I think was about I'd say a month ahead of LA, which is where we're headquartered. So we worked from home pretty early. Um, we made you know headcount reductions, unfortunately, relatively early. We did you know salary adjustments, etc. So now, being a couple months in, I feel like everyone's kind of the trauma of it all has stopped, and we are now accepting that we're going to be remote for a very long time, and that certain things may change, but. Everyone's in good spirits. We have a great plan for Afrotech, which was kind of the biggest risk because it's in November and it's 10,000 people. Mm. Um, so we we have some plans around that that I'm excited about. We have some new products that are coming out. So overall, we're okay. It's certainly, I think, emotionally was really, really hard for me to grieve and to accept that like my financial projections that I worked so hard on uh, <laughs> aren't real anymore. And more importantly, the revenue that we worked so hard to grow year over year. I mean, we've never had a year where we haven't grown revenue significantly. So um, that's just really hard for my ego, you know? And so I had to come to do a lot of self-care and like meditation and self-love to not take it personally. Like I didn't make COVID, (laughs) right? Um, But it still hurts. Like as the leader of a group of people, when you're responsible for their salaries and their benefits, like that level of responsibility it really was hard for me to have a consequence for an action that wasn't my fault. Absolutely. I was, you know, I think as founders, we're typically, you know, type A control freaks. And I think when something like this kind of comes down the pipeline where it's completely out of your control, um, it feels very, very hard to digest and understand. And like, you know, even especially because it's also so unknown, like figure out 
what to do and like put plans in place. I mean, I think we're a little on the other side of that now where we're sort of adapting to the new normal, but what are some of the key learnings or things that you've experienced during this, you know, coronavirus time where you're, you'll probably continue on after like any learnings or things that you've been implementing? Absolutely. I did not talk to my team enough. I was so busy traveling and being external and talking to my like directors that I did not, I thought that I was being present. I thought that when I was home and in the office, I was available, but I wasn't. I had blinders on. So the reason why I say that is since COVID, I've been meeting with my team, my directors every week and our associates every other week and our managers every other week. So basically on the alternate weeks, I meet with them. And I've learned so much. Uh, and I, I think I just took it for granted that everything was cool. And, and you know, I've, of course, I get negative feedback with like any other CEO and we've got negative feedback, you know, all the types of things. But like, it's really interesting when you slow down for a second the things that you learn, especially from your own, the people around you, you know? So I think that's something that I'm so grateful for because I don't think I'll ever stop this. They're probably tired of me, <laughs> frankly. They're like, can she go travel and like speak? But um, yeah, so I've learned a lot about the team and just different changes and things that we need to make. And then the other thing is just how little resources we need. You know, we, if we had to do a video shoot, we'd have three producers, you know, a PA, all these cameras, expensive lighting, and now it's all online. (laughs) So why did we have so much fat in the business? Let's make it super duper lean so we can invest more in our people and do better in the long term. So those are the two of the biggest things. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I, you know, same for us too. I think it's realizing, you know, I was always very anti-work from home, not for any particular reason, just because we have such a, a business that requires so much in-person conversations, creative things happening. And, and obviously being forced from home for months now, it's like, yeah, it's totally possible to run a company remotely and be able to, you know, keep innovating, keep, you know, things moving at the, the pace you need to. So you've had this incredible career. Obviously you're running this really groundbreaking business. When you look back, is there any advice you wish you would have given yourself or gotten early on in your career? Oh, wow. Great question. I think the advice I would give myself, younger me, I definitely took it really hard when people didn't understand my idea. And I was very defensive, I think for a long time, even while Blavity was becoming pretty successful. And I had a chip on my shoulder. I remember someone telling me that, like, you have a huge chip on your shoulder. And I was like, yes, yes, I do. But like, that didn't serve me, you know, like it didn't give me, it didn't make me feel good. And right now, as I'm in my thirties, I've just been focusing on what makes me happy and what brings me joy and trying to let go of um, the expectations that others have of me. And I would have maybe started that process earlier if I had been more self-aware and conscious of it. Totally fair. And I, I, I kind of feel that way too. I think, you know, your twenties and thirties are very different, especially when you're an entrepreneur in both those sort of phases of your life. So what has been a priceless moment in your career thus far? So many priceless moments. I would say recently, there's a time, there's a a team meeting. Um, One of the women on my team was started off as an intern and now she's a director. And 
she was running a team brainstorm with the associates <laughs> at the company. And it was just like the proudest moment ever because I remember when I was running the brainstorm for her in her intern class and like the associates aren't interns, but they're the most junior employees we have. And it was just like, she just crushed it and they were all so excited and they had great feedback and great ideas that we hadn't thought of. And it just felt like, all right, you know, if COVID crashes and burns the entire universe and like, this is as far as I get, like, this is, this is good enough. You know, I felt kind of at peace. So that was a definite crisis moment. I love that. That's, I mean, that is such a great feeling. And I love when you're able to see people grow within the company like that. It's so awesome. Um, So we'll end on this. What is the one piece of advice you always give to small business owners? Uh, My one piece of advice for small business owners is to focus on the cash and the revenue. It can get, be easy to think about and get excited about ideas and innovations and all the plans and all the things you could do. But I think it's really important for your security and for the business to focus on what's going to bring you money next month and the month after that and build incrementally towards your vision. Cash is queen. It is so true. It is such great advice. Um, Always awesome chatting with you, Morgan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jacqueline. Have you bought your copy of Work Party the Book? Part Career Manifesto, part Practical Business Advice, Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com so you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.